0: Jay, welcome. Thank you for coming on this show. How very fun we're going to have. So glad you're here.
1: Good morning, Chris.
0: No, uh, that wasn't a question yet. I should get to the questions. Um, All right. So, so fun. So, Jay, I love your story and I love your friendship. Tell us how you got into ancient sea travel or ancient, uh, ancient, ancient, ancient. How did you get into this stuff?
1: Uh, Well, a couple of different ways. My, uh, My father read a Barry Fells book when it first came out, America, BC. And he passed it to me and he says, Jay, this is amazing. You ought to read this book. And of course, my father was a geology major at Dartmouth and has always done, he says he's always the one at the bottom of the hole. In the 1930s, he and his college buddy were went all over the United States digging Indian relics, right? He was quite the digger, which is not what I do. But at any rate, uh, he's always been, uh, I've always been kind of close to him. I've been, He died at 93 uh, a couple of years ago, which was a loss to me uh, at any rate. He encouraged me to read Barry Fell's book, and I did, and was qu- quite taken with it because he introduced the idea that Celts were in the United States, and there were uh, uh, records and ruins and so on. There were traces of them in New England. And, um, son of a some of the sites, the hilltop stone sites, were in. Uh, Vermont just across the Connecticut river from the college where I went at Dartmouth. And, uh, so Susie and I went back there, my wife Susie, uh, and I went back to a, uh, Dartmouth reunion. And, uh, uh, I wanted to see if some of the sites that were in Barry fells book were, were c- correct. And, um, uh, so it was raining, but uh, God, uh, my wife was uh, minimal at the time. We put on we got these uh, tube black plastic garbage bags and made raincoats out of them and climbed a hill and, at Pomfret and son of a Gun at the top was a uh, 20 foot deep, um, stone chamber of uh, big, huge stone slabs that looked out at a a men here in the distance and then a a bee in the mountains in the distance. And it was just amazing. Here I was going to a college that supposedly would taught Indians. You know, it's big thing was teaching the Indians, but they didn't know what was around the college. It's really um, anyway, that encouraged me. To research this more, and I encourage anyone, of course, to read Barry Fell's book. He was a biologist at Harvard, and he's died, but the book is his three books are terrific. I um, started this whole movement of uh, early American uh, prehistory, as far uh, at least for me, and I think it has for thousands of other people. Um, <clears throat> I was also uh, managing and. Uh, apartment buildings at the time. And my wife uh, said, Jay, you know, um, why don't you get a hobby? Uh, you know, it's kind of boring for you just to be cleaning apartments all the time on the turnovers. (laughs) And uh, and so, of course, I did very well with that, but uh, for a long time. But uh, it's it's uh, I did. I started working uh, more seriously. on uh, this uh, ancient subject of ancient America. Susie and I took a trip to Brittany and I tried to get into a museum there at noontime at Karnak and there was a little fellow in a fancy suit, kind of unhappy that he couldn't get into the museum. And I thought, what's the matter? He said, well, I had an appointment. I'm Dutch and I had, I've driven all the way down here and I had an appointment with this gal and uh, she's not here and because she was taking one of these two and a half hour long French lunch breaks. And he was disappointed that she didn't respect his appointment time. Anyway, he and I talked for half the night and we ended up being friends for many, many years. And, um, uh, we, we talked late at night in our B and, um, he turned out to be a, uh, PhD candidate in math, in uh, physical chemistry. he's quite the mathematician and he taught me to, uh, count everything. And so, uh, he had a penchant for just knowing how many there were of everything. it's quite <laughs> pretty amazing. And, uh, so I learned a lot from him, and we enjoyed many trips, many, many trips, because I've been studying this now for about 25 years. And uh, <clears throat> we uh, traveled around, sometimes in his little Dutch, uh, I'd fly over to Schiphol the airport there in Amsterdam. and We'd get in his little diesel station wagon and drive it around down the coast of France or wherever, down in Iberia. I've also been up in the Orkney Islands and, and down to Malta and out to the Azores and the Canaries and so on. So we've had, I've done some of those trips with some other people and some couple by myself when people fell through on their end of the trip. But um, at any rate, for about 25 years, I've gone every, say, April, April. Uh, Beautiful springtime trips before the uh, Europeans go on vacation. We have had beautiful trips um, to all the megalithic sites in Europe. Now, and of course, I've also been in Asia and Egypt and some other Central, South America and so on. So I haven't been everywhere, but I've I've been, the places I've gone have been nonviolent and uh, interesting. And when you travel with uh, uh, a goal in mind of visiting historic sites. You can also enjoy the food and the people and the traveling and learn a lot uh, on the tr- trip. So, I, I, you know, we've had a lot of wonderful trips and I have photographic records of most of the places. And I've been able to write um, articles, research articles based on um, finds and things that we've put together. A lot of what we put together is based on counting because that's what Raynaud was good at. We started with petroglyphs in Europe and we found that um, uh, we were able, he was the expert in it and we were, the first thing he did was um, uh, a site in Ireland and we uh, found that we could read many of the petroglyphs and for example many of the early uh, petroglyphs of england have a great big lump on the right down to the bottom and that's the doggers bank which was dry before the ice stage and you can see that on the earliest petroglyphs in europe at any rate we went to sites all over europe and we're looking at petroglyphs and we learned quite a lot um, from the study of petroglyphs. And the result of that work is a book that w- we put out and I put Reynaud on the cover. This is my friend on the cover. There is Reynaud pointing to uh, petroglyphs at Locru, which is an early story told pictographically before writing. This book is called, How the Sun God Reached America. And this big volume records everything that we found with regard to European petroglyphs. And uh, in the process of that work, we went to, started going to sites, particularly down in the coast of France that had rocks in large rows. And you're probably familiar with Karnak, as uh, thousands of stones in long rows. And I put those in a book called Rocks and Rows. So that this book is about decipherment of the meaning of stones that are in long rows. Now the Romans were at Karnak where they have these, I just showed the picture.
0: Jay, Jay. Even the Romans didn't Jay. know what they were. Jay, can you just repeat that? Yeah. Just repeat that last part. I just lost you for a second.
1: Okay. <clears throat> well, we did a second book, Rino and I. And this one I did more with my some of my own things, but it, my own finds There are still uh, trips. But Rocks and Rose is a book about uh, the long rows in Europe and Brittany. This is uh, on the cover of the book here is are uh, the at the Karnak. But uh, we, we figured out, it took us maybe three months or four months or six months or some each site to kind of figure out what the site was about that Rose and Karnak are about their discovery at the Azores Islands. Basically, the idea is this, that you have intelligent people. This is only, you know, they're like us. I mean, it's not, it's only thousands of years ago. It's just before writing though, that they were people.
0: Jay. I wonder why that sound is going off. Jay? 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 Jay, Chris is, Chris is saying the sound has gone off. Okay. I, I can hear you, Chris. What is it? wonder why the sound is going off on that. I don't know. Here I am. The there sound isn't working. Okay, so there you're back, Jay. So so you can't hear Jay? I haven't touched anything. I haven't touched the, anything. There you go. It may just go in and out from the internet, but it's all been good so far. Okay, anything. so let's jump back. So, Jay,
1: you yeah, were... Okay. He, you just, were
0: he, just, he, he just had to give permission. He had to give permission to be recorded. That's all he had to say. He gave permission to be recorded. Okay, thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. So, can you, Jay, can you hear him now? Yeah, can you hear him now? Yeah. It's, I can't hear any. Can you hear me, Jay? It says record. Up at the top. Oh, I can hear him. I, I can hear you. He can't hear you. Yeah.
1: Okay, Jay- some Bluetooth again. Okay. Well, what can I do about it? It's your phone.
0: Huh? The phone. I don't know.
1: Let's see. It switched you to.
0: Okay, Jay, you were saying that these people who built Karnak were just like us and what were they doing and what were they building? Yeah,
1: Yeah. they were trying to discover that. They were interested in seeing what was on the other side of the earth. So they were trying to explore the ocean to the west of the coast. These people, the Beaker people they're called, they lived on the ocean and on the rivers. And um, so they're maritime people. It's known that they were maritime people. Um, But the problem is that the trade winds come onto the coasts of Europe from the west, and so you just can't, it's hard, very hard to sail out to the west. And um, now they've got a sun religion, this is expanding the topic a little bit, but 23 degrees uh, north is as far as the sun comes and brings us the summer. And then the sun goes back south again and it changes from fall into winter. And it's the most fundamental number in mavic navigation. And they knew that number because that number is the most common number found in megalithic monuments. Okay. And I told you we were studying megalithic monuments. And in uh, the book, uh, Ox and Rose and How the Sun God, my earlier books are all about megalithic monuments. So. Uh, we think that that they sailed out at the 23 degrees latitude which the sun god took every day as he went to the west. Are we okay, yeah. Chris? Okay. So, so, um, so if you go out to 23 degrees, I'm losing my hearing just a little here, okay. If you go out to 23 degrees, um, you run into what are called the uh, horse latitudes where the sailors would eat their horses in later later times, sailing boat, sailing ship days because there's no wind, they would run out of food and have to eat their horses and whatever, that's called the horse latitudes. At any rate, it's a Sargasso Sea in the middle of the Atlantic. And we think what happened is that in these early days of maybe, uh, well, 30, 38, 3600 BC, um, some of the heroes that were trying to go to the West in this difficult route, that um, they didn't know the trade wind patterns of the earth. Uh, uh, some of them got blown to the north by wind that showed up or they followed some birds. Uh, The seas had never been fished. The oceans must have been very interesting at those times. So um, with sea life. At any rate, they went to the north and we know they discovered the Azores Islands at uh, 3600 BC because that's the date of the monument for the Azores that's built on the coast of France. And it's been archaeologically dated at 3600 BC. And that <clears throat> monument is built out of 39 enormous, enormous stones. And it's angled the true north at 39 degrees north. And the Azores are at 39 degrees north. Okay, They're actually 37, 38, and 39, because they spread out. There's nylon spread out over three different latitudes. But the Western ones, the, most, the ones you got to find coming from the other side, are 39 degrees north. At any rate, they found the Azores. And of course, <clears throat> uh, there are pyramids there and uh, various other ruins and monuments and um, perch stones and things. Uh, there are uh, ruts down in the rock that are you know, just inexplicable to most archeologists. <clears throat> uh, in fact, a big pyramid in uh, Madalena on the island of Pico is called uh, uh, of, uh, Unexplained Origin by the, on the brass plaque, put wow. there by the archeologists uh, for Portugal. All right, so at any rate, um, they found the Azores, and uh, they're trying to find their way west. And for about 800 years, they couldn't go further west, <clears throat> but eventually they're poking around up. They've got, they're, uh, they're in the north, they find um, they're living on the uh, uh, Orkney Islands, and the archaeologists recently had a big, exciting discovery there uh, on the uh, a little isthmus between two lakes. And uh, <clears throat> they they discovered that uh, the archaeologists have reported that they it was very strange. It was very holy. They had huge buildings, and uh, they had an enormous feast in it. 700 cattle or 800 cattle were all cooked one night. You know, a big feast, and then everybody disappeared. You know, and they, dis- they their temple went was not used anymore, and people disappeared. And uh, they can't explain it. And they also were surprised they found no bronze, no copper, no bronze. And, uh, of course, that makes a lot of sense to me. They didn't ask me. I sent them a letter, but I don't get a response. But... Um, <laughs> The people who were living there, looking away west, and they had found the uh, the, sh- the uh, Shetlands to the north, and they had found then a stepping stone over to the uh, Faroe Islands, and from there you can sail over to Iceland, and then over to there to Greenland. Thomas Jefferson said, "Sure, it, it, uh, America was found in very early times because all you had to do is stepping stone across the North Atlantic," and he was correct. That did do and what happened when they were able to brave finally the icebergs coming down uh, the labrador uh, in the labrador current on the west side of greenland which is the foggiest place in the world as that cold gold cold labrador current comes down from the west side of greenland and hits the gulf stream it uh, creates the biggest fogs in the world in the summertime and it's also full of big icebergs in it held back the discovery of, of the, what, of the um, backside of the planet about 800 years. And they thought the home of the Western home of the sun god was in the Azores for a long period of time. Finally, they broke it and they found um, that, that they, if they sailed across at 39 degrees north, which they had, um, anyway, that's a, a documented number in a number of ways. Uh, And they sailed across, they took the sun god's number, holy number of 39, and and found uh, Baffin Island on the other side. And that was big news. And when they found the west, then the people dried out their cows into dried meat, put it on the ships and sailed west. It was a huge land rush or gold rush or whatever at the time that they discovered the west. Now, they later found they could also go west by going very south, going down to the Canaries. You could see the Canaries from the coast of Africa. and you, If you sail west, if you go down to Brava, the southernmost uh, uh, island in the Cape Verde Islands, you can, it's where you, you kick off with the wind. A coconut put in the water will go to the West Indies. And that's what Columbus did. That's what they found they could do. That's called the Southern Crossing. So there's the Northern Crossing and the Southern Crossing were ways that these people found their way to the West. And uh, then they, it was quite a while. I think there were people and events that happened and diseases were brought to the West early on before they could sail back to Europe. But they did find that they could go up onto the coast of America and Sail from the most eastern part of North America and cross the Gulf Stream to the Azores, and then they had a loop, okay, and could sail west and then return to the east. It's um, eventually they found Bermuda. We found the pet- we found the petroglyphs that explained all that and so on. It's in the books. So, so that's the story of our early work that I did with Rhino for first 20, you know, for many years, uh, rocks and rows and sailing routes across the Atlantic. Now, why am I interested in that? Well, when I was young, we uh, sailed in the Bahamas. My dad sailed in the Bahamas. We, we've always lived on the water. I've always been on the water. I've always sailed boats. I've always been around boats, always had boats. So, this sailing stuff is uh, kind of in the blood. And uh, I'm not an archaeologist that's never been on the water. I mean, I, so I have an interest in latitudes and sailing. Even at Dartmouth, I was one of the last year. It was the quarter it was ever given was a course in celestial navigation by an old guy at Dartmouth. It was kind of a classic little class. So I've had some celestial navigation ever since then. I've been here. I've been the last 25 years. I've been studying um, sailing routes prior to writing. In the pre late prehistory, okay. So, t- do you have a question, or can I should I go to the third book? Go ahead. All right. In the process of studying this stuff, um, I got I I was going to conferences in uh, Michigan of the AAPS, the Asian American Artifact Preservation Society, and got to know Fred Ridholm who founded that group. And he was sort of a mentor to me in some ways. And that got me interested in what the people found when they got here. Of course, they were getting pearls and drugs, which have been found in the mummies, right? And in in Egypt, they found cocaine and so on. So there's a lot of things that have been discovered in recent times that have have backed up all the findings that we were finding. Which has been exciting. And I've been speaking at this conference every year in the fall for the last 14 years and Fred Ridholm encouraged me quite a lot. The big, I could see that the major issue, the major thing that these people were finding Was copper, because there were the conference was held every year up in Michigan, where there were 10s of 1000s of copper pits that were out in the woods, they could go down by hand about 30, somebody went down about 30 feet with stone axes. And then um, for the first, these pits have been filling up with leaves and dirt and stuff, but these pits were used to, um, by in the 1800s, copper mines developed, uh, found copper in Michigan and they found copper every time there was on top of old pits. There was somebody in there mining enormous amounts of copper, 10,000 pits, doesn't even include the pits up in Canada and stuff. So, and there's a, uh, there's a, a copper, there was a lava bed under Lake Superior and over a, a billion years of the Earth's copper had um, been built up as a crystal through the lake in the lava by water flowing through the lava had built up crystals of copper in the... in, the, in the, it's, a, it's an unusual event on Earth to find enormous, enormous beds of copper in this lava bed. And the lava bed ended up under Lake Superior, because it's very old, but it pokes up at the Isle Royal and then the Caywana Peninsula, and that's where these old timers found the Indians with copper and said, where do you get that? And they went there and they found copper all over the place and they dug all these pits and now there's these pits and what in the world's going on? Where'd the copper go? So in the United States, there was all this copper dug in prehistory and where'd it go? Nobody knows. In Europe, they had a Bronze Age and they still can't figure out where it came from. I mean, they're looking in the Caucasus and this and that. God, they spent a lot of money in in, uh, Cambridge and they have all these studies and they can't it's it's all written up in my new book called The Copper Trade. And it's got a sailboat on the cover, which is the Valhalla, which is my dad's boat. We spent a year in the Bahamas on it. But at any rate, I've written up the story of all the evidence that I've been able to put together about this use of Michigan copper and how it got to Europe in sailboats, okay? And um, so, I probably know as much about it as anybody i wouldn't know um the ridholm r-y-d-h-o-l-m book on uh, michigan copper is excellent and i highly recommend it it's kind of expensive My just prices the cop what it cost me to print them which is 20 bucks but uh i just find the information out there but <clears throat> of course we're being fought by the local archaeologists who think that the Indians did it all, but at any rate, <clears throat> uh, we're going to change things here shortly and I can explain why. So we're going to have a big impact here pretty soon. So at any rate, I'm, I'm kind of an expert now in the copper trade, having come from petroglyphs to r- rows of rocks, which is all mathematical, into the copper trade. Now, um, So that's my history in this. Um, A couple of, there have been other, some other developments um, because I've gotten to know people at these conferences. So um, one of the things that's happened is that I've been buying, been able to buy. Oh, I wanted to prove that Michigan copper was in Europe. And so I thought, well, I got to do metals testing. I've got to have some samples. So I bought a bunch of um, artifacts just to, because I could take little samples off. I mean, you can't do that in a museum. And I found that in Seattle here, I could go down and get them tested. Well, that didn't find, turn, turn, turn. After I bought all this stuff, I'm working along on it. I found out that didn't make much sense because artifacts are made. By guys that collect broken artifacts and they melt them up and make new ones. So you can't trace out anything because it comes from all these different artifacts, right? So I kind of gave up on that. I have collection of stuff. Stuff was all right. So I'm building out a bunch of money and I was spending a thousand bucks or two thousand bucks a month, whatever, just buying some stuff. Anyway, and I made a con- through all through that. <clears throat> um, I have a, a museum of the history of axis of man, going from the <clears throat> Paleolithic, Mesolithic, Chalcolithic, all of Iron Age, and so on. I've got a museum, and, the, and the, my books are sorted by the age of the artifacts. And so I have what I call a timeline museum, and I've given talks on it, and it's very popular, because most people sort their books by ways that don't mean much, but mine are all sorted by the time that they're writing about okay so I have the timeline museum now I've also bought artifacts from different people and one of them I've been buying what are called uh, I think it's over I think I've missed a biology that he had but there was a guy, a fellow named dr. Moog a physician who died in uh, quite a while long while ago um, that collected what they call decorated axes. These are bronze axes axe heads that have patterns on them. And I've been to most of the museums in UN I've never seen one of these in a museum. They may have them in their basement or probably just don't know what they have because they're these axes when you get them they're totally when I get, they're totally black. Here's an example there's the black side of an axe right it's a small little bronze axe. They're not beaten on the edges very much. They're ceremonial. Um, but these decorated ones from Dr. Moog, he died. They were all in a box, a muddy box in the basement. It's right near where the World War I happened. So, you know, it's hard to trace out the origins of this stuff. There's boxes were in his basement. He went around Europe buying this stuff. He collected these kind of objects. And um, then World War II came through there, too, and messed it up again. So so at any rate, this box of axes in his basement, there was a fellow that I knew that was asked to sell them on the internet. And I've been buying them from them. I have have outbid some museums and so on. Because I found that if I do the no-no and actually scraping the steel, well, they're very tough. I find here's a couple of the bronze I've shown to you. I have 27 of these. Every one of them is different. They're all unique. This one was is unique that it has an image of the sun god on one side. Um, it's gold that's been pounded into the bronze, which you like you could barely see. It has patterns on it too that are kind of complicated, but. Maybe, yeah, you can see some of the patterns. Anyway, I count these patterns, the number of dots in these patterns. And on the other side, it has, as most of them do, a route to the west, down the center, both along the sides. So it's got the sun god going to the west, down the back of this axe. This other one that was more recent uh, has... A pattern on the back, all these little points. Okay, there's four on each side, and then a circle at the top. Nine for the nine islands of the Azores. The little circle has 23 dots in it, which is the holy number of the sun god. And then the inside, it's it, this is all about the Azores. You can there's so many uh, 39s on here. You know it's about the Azores. And the amazing thing about it is here is a drawing. I'll try to hold it still. It's a drawing of a dancer on the back. Can you see that? That's one of my more amazing uh, artifacts. At at any rate, there's a a big platform sticking out of the one of the Pyramid Nasors on Pico and Madalena. It's in the middle of the town park and it has a big tongue sticking out of it where the dancer probably danced because this has enough numbers on it that it's about the Azores and it's a dancer. So anyway, I've, and <clears throat> other, other of these, there are other axes that have the beaker patterns on them, the little diamonds and so on. So I know this is beaker people, I know the people who did it, I, and I know I can read patterns on these axes and I can read what is being, um, the information that's being saved on these axes. They don't know how to write what's in the air. It's, it's pretty literate, but they can count somehow. Why this information is getting in on bronze taxes. I don't know, but it's over time 4,000 years. So I give a talk at the Power Squadron and I said, you know, are your chart plotters going to be useful about 3,000 years from now? What about your paper charts? You know, I don't know how, why. This information, this digital information is being stored on bronze. I don't know how it got on these. These are like ceremonial owners owned by the top people of the society. Why it was stored on there, you know, I don't know if they came from sheepskin or as common knowledge or what it was, but there's um, digital, these people were thinking digitally. Okay. I mean, people say today, "Oh, we're in a new digital world; everything's digital. Analog's gone." No, no. no. Before the analog, before analog, people were counting and recording digital information. So we've gone from a digital prehistory to analog, back to digital. Okay, it's kind of an interesting way to look at it. Things because most people don't look at things like that that way. Then there've been other artifacts shown up. A fellow with a metal detector on it Play, playground in Cincinnati comes up 18 inches deep out of mud that's been dredged out of the Ohio River comes up with this. You're looking at the um, a copy of the uh, dancer from it's a Minoan dancer they call him the Prince of Lilies and this little pendant which is a little hole at the top Okay, there it is, torn. was found in the Ohio River. Uh, mud. Dredged out of the Ohio River. Prints a little on one side. Little writing on the bottom. And then, in Minoan. And then the, the triple axe on the back. Okay, so this is a Minoan artifact out of the Ohio River. So the Minoans, we know there were several different cultures mining copper. One of them's the Beaker people, one of them's the Minoans. The Minoans were known for being the, the shipping and the marketing of copper ingots in the uh, throughout the Mediterranean now the copper trade all ended in a at once overnight all this stone axes are laying around they just said they could tell it stopped overnight the copper trade just ended and um, academically I've got the some of these academic books the the uh, about the end of the Bronze Age that it ended like overnight in disasters around the world. All the cities in the Mediterranean burned at once. They had all the faculty at the University of Washington at this uh, wine tasting thing. I I asked them. Uh, they were all a little shy. I said, "Hey, why is it that the Bronze Age ended almost overnight with the burning of all these cities?" And they all stood around and said, "We don't know. We have no idea." All right. So <clears throat> basically what happened, I've, we've also, in the pr- course of all writing these books, we've studied comet history and we know there big impactors have hit the earth. Now they haven't occurred during our lifetime stress, but they've been experienced by men. And there were, um, this was, we think it was the, uh majority or the bigger part of, uh, of, of um, the common Enki broke apart in 1198 bc and over a 50 or 100 year period pieces came down to earth and they, um it burned all these cities it ended the copper trade it ended atlantis it just the shang dynasty fell in china the Hittite ended. It ended the New Kingdom in Egypt. Uh, it ended all the civilizations around the earth, and all the intelligent people were dead. All, uh, all the artwork stopped for about 800 years. You know, the next what you have coming up afterwards, a little later, 400, 500, 600 years later, is the Greek civilization. Okay. So it took a while for humanity to recover from this huge disaster. But what, I've, what I have observed is that there's one place on Earth where they recorded it all, where they recorded what was going on. And that was the first civilization in Central America called the Olmec. And the Olmec people, if you go to, uh, recorded it on in figurines and carvings. And if you're in, the, in Villa Hermosa in Mexico at the archaeological park near the oil refinery, there's a six foot statue of what they call a sky watcher looking straight up into the sky. They call it the sky watcher statue. But there's also, I have picked up about, oh, I, I've got a one that weighs about 40 pounds, a little sky watcher figure, which can be the center of my exhibit. And I've got about a whole bunch of, um, these. Now, this is a jade skywatcher figure, and you can see that he's, okay, he's translucent in a bright light. So he's quite remarkable for and all this stuff comes to the mail through eBay. The early eBay, people were, were selling collections, and they're not so much anymore. It's harder to find good things now than when eBay first came out. But for 600 bucks, this thing is pure Green jade looking straight up. This is called the Skywatcher figure, and it's maybe my fanciest one it was the first one I bought. Okay He's laying on his elbows and looking right up. Wow, and I've got about 30 of these. Not all as fancy as this. But I wanted to show you one more, and that's this guy. Here's a statue, a little figurine. and this guy is holding pillows. If I can show you here, there's a hand. He's got his hand holding a pillow on both sides. There's a hand. See, there's a pillow over his ears on both sides. This is Olmec. Wow. So these things that came down from space not only burn stuff, burn cities, change the climate, but with l- l- noisy events. We, this is evidence, this is factual evidence that these were very noisy events going on, okay? In fact, <clears throat> climatologists call that time, following these impacts, they call it the Plenard period, P-L-E-N-A-R-D, Plenard period, because the earth became cold, the agriculture went down. It's kind of, it's, a, it's a, interesting. It all fits together. I haven't found any facts that that dissuade me from uh, that these um Skywatcher figures were the recording by man of a major, major event <clears> that came down from space. Now there's a man here in France that has a that has a one thing recorded, has a comet recorded on it too. But that's a I think a different time. But anyway, that's another subject. All right now.
0: Go ahead, yes, Jay. Correct.
1: No, no. Go ahead. Keep going. I'm sorry. Okay. I have you asked me to show a couple of some artifacts, and so I picked a couple. In the process, okay, there's a, a very interesting uh group in the Midwest called the Midwest Epigraphic Society. And <clears throat> I've spoken there a number of times and interesting people that uh I got to know. One of them was uh I uh, had been doing, mu- uh, creating museum exhibits uh, professionally all his life, and one of the more interesting experiences I had in my life was going into his basement and seeing his collection of Burroughs cave stones and his drawings of them. Um, he's now died. He gave me my first Burroughs cave stone, he says, just pick the one you like out of the other room. He had a collection he'd bought from a fellow, it turned out, who had stolen cave, stolen um in the dark had stolen a bunch of uh, stones out of a cave that he had accident and it's all over the internet called Burroughs burrow's cave um and i i've got a couple of, i just um there was a, a a people in columbus where i was at this midwest epigraphic society meetings where i was speaking a couple of times um People in Columbus had been buying stuff from this guy. He had found him in Southern Illinois, so it was close. And these people were uh, working, spending time with this Bros and it's kind of a long story. But there's some books that were put out. by One of the books was by Burroughs and my previous mentor. I told you about uh, up at um, in Michigan. So um, at any rate, there's there's a long history, and of course, it's being filmed, and it'll being developed as a documentary film, and there are a number of films. And of course, some of the people are calling me up and wanting to know things. So anyway, I, I, there was a public health physician that had bought quite a number of stones um, from Burroughs, and he was going blind, and so I was asked, would you like to buy stuff? And I said, okay. I had just sold an apartment building, so I had some money I paid a big commission to a guy to help me with the sale, So well, what the heck, I can at least buy stones with some of the money. So <clears throat> this is one of my favorite Burroughs cave stones. Uh, it's a slate uh, seal, and I don't know if I can show you, but the head of the seal, there he is, there's this head, okay? And then there's a, what is also here? There's uh, some writing that we can't read. Sorry, I'm moving it around because I'm trying to see what I'm doing too. There's some writing on it. Okay. Celtiberian, how you think. Okay, now I'm going to, and there's the tail of the seal. I mean, where are you going to see a seal in Illinois if they haven't been sailing? Okay. Now here's this other side of the seal. Here's the head. There's a boat on the ocean. Okay. <laughs> and then there's a tail. I a beautiful little image of a seal that would only happen if they're sailing the ocean. And it's got writing on it. And <clears throat> Chris has asked me to show one of the larger stones. This is uh, one of the larger ones. This is a, a face. He wanted me to show you a face. There's a lot of facial pictorial funerary stones this is an interesting one it's got a little menorah at the top and a little Jewish skull cap because at the time of this cave okay, the Romans had uh, a Jewish war going on I think it was the first Jewish war at any rate and uh, what else is there there's a little star okay so I of course these 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 um, are these stones show people that are a number of different cultures. And some of them are Indians, some of them are Africans, some of them are Egyptian priests, and some of them are Jewish people. There's just all kinds of people um, found on these Burroughs cave stones. The interesting thing about Burroughs cave is that uh, You know, we now know where it is. It was lost to history because Mr. Burroughs tried to hide it to prevent from being discovered that he had stolen the stuff. So he blew it up with with, uh, black powder that he stole from his uh, 100 pounds of powder disappeared from his Civil War reenactment group. And at the same time, the cave blew up. So, but now Wayne called me one day, Wayne is uh, the producer publisher of Ancient American Magazine, which I ought to plug because I've been, he's been so nice and he's published about, I have about 30, over the many 25 years, I think I have about 35 articles of mine have been printed in it. Um, I very much have, have um, benefited or enjoyed seeing my self, uh, my articles. Um, we're using the photos that I've taken over the years in all these different places and putting them together, telling stories about artifacts and what we've learned. So I'm, I'm in many issues of ancient American and Wayne May I've gotten to know and respect uh, over many years. And um, he's the publisher of the magazine. So um, it's kind of a, been a tough and go thing for him Uh, used to do six a year, now he does four, but it's a good magazine. Now he's doing it all in color. I'm in the current September one with an article about my father. And I hand his find down on the Delaware River uh, of uh, some very, very ice age uh, stone points that are argillite and very, very weathered. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I found in a Moorhead book, a stone photo of a stone at Moorhead As in his book, it's a a mammoth on a stone. And when I read about it, it was only a couple of miles downriver from where my dad's find was. So it kind of dates my dad's old uh, points with this, which he found in the back of a cave with this mammoth. It's it's an Ice Age story in the Delaware coming out in ancient American September, about in a couple of weeks. Well, at any rate, Wayne called me up one day, and hes he doesn't spend a lot of time on the phone. You know, I like my work. So he says, Jay, I learned something very interesting. He says, Burroughs had a buddy. I said, what? He said, yeah. His his wife was a nurse in the local hospital. And I mean, his uh, Burroughs' wife was a nurse in the hospital. And her friend there was married to the radiologist. Really? And so, yeah. And so Burroughs connected with this radiologist to pass the bags of rocks up out of the cave. The ones I've been a couple I've shown you were passed up in burlap bags up a ladder with on a rope with this person. So I thought, oh my God, is that right? This other guy is still alive? He says, yeah, I think so. I said, Wayne. You got to get them here. We need them. We got it. It's been, the location of this cave has been hidden and people call all these stones fake because the cave's never been verified. They can't verify anything, verify anything because the cave's hidden. Now, these people lived in a colony, we think, for 600 years and there's no graves or mounds or anything. So they buried everything in these limestone caves in southern illinois and what but yeah we can't find it we can't prove it all we got is rocks that have come out of it some of them are black, a lot of them are black mudstones and some of them are not there's all kinds of artifact well um so now <clears throat> we're sitting here uh, and we've got uh, wayne says uh, well I tell him you've got to get this guy to, to show us where these, where we brought this stuff up out of the cave, and Wayne says, "Oh, okay, I'll give him a call. I'll call you back in a few minutes. I'll call you back." And I said, "Well, that's fine." So I just went about doing what I was doing, and uh, <clears throat> so then uh, a little bit Wayne calls back, and he says, "Jay." Uh, I talked to him. I found him in London, and uh, I said, "Really?" I said, "Well, you got to get him to come here." And uh, and uh, and so I he says, "Uh, "Oh, all right, all right. So I'll call you back. I'll let me call him back and see if he'll come and show us." Okay, call me back, Wayne. Okay. So Wayne says, I'll call you back in a few minutes. So, so Wayne uh, calls, the phone rings again a little while. He says, Jay, I talked to him. He'll come. He wants to come. I said, well, if, and he says, what's more, he's really motivated because Wayne, uh, Burroughs had told him that if he ever told where the cave was, that he'd shoot him. That's why he's in London. I got, got out of there. I said, really? Yeah, and he says he wants to get even with the son of a bitch. So he'll come and show us. So I said, really? Okay, well, find out how soon you can get him here. And uh, he says, okay, I'll call you back. So Wayne called back a little bit, a little bit later, and he says, Jay, it's going to cost me about five thousand bucks to buy the air tickets and motel. It's an whole deal. And and, uh, and and I said, well, Wayne, the check's in the mail. Don't worry about it. Get him to come here now. Make it, make him commit to it. Get a date. I want a date. So, Wayne says, I'll call me back in a few minutes. So, he calls back into the doctor in London. And uh, so, so, uh, so uh, uh, he says, Yeah. So, he calls me back and he's got a date. And for Franklin Pope, MD to show up in St. Louis. And I'm supposed to go to St. Louis and meet this guy, Dr. Pope. And so I got my tickets and the whole thing's ready to go. But Susie and I were on a, on a tour in Holland and we, on a Delta flight coming back, we, got, we think we got it from the airplane that picked up water somewhere it shouldn't have. So we get uh, the, um, the runs, okay? And we didn't get it treated. Susie lost 10, 12 pounds. Finally, we got it diagnosed, but I missed meeting from Giardia. Finally, we, so we met, I met. I couldn't get to St. Louis. So, so <clears throat> Wayne drove down and met Dr. Pope, and they drove around to all the possible sites where this cave could be, and uh, they're walking up all these rivers, and, geez, I was scheduled for a knee replacement, and I couldn't have walked it anyway. Anyway, they're going up the little skillet, and they kind of, the guy says, finally, he says, Dr. Pope says, hey, this is the place. There's this is cross stones over there, look like this. He says, I remember that. So we need to walk up this hill to the left. And so they walk up this bluff of the river edge, the bluff, and not very high, but you know, I haven't been there yet. Can't give you the exact description. Seen some pictures. So, at any rate, they go up and he says, Dr. Pope identified exactly where they had stolen all this stuff that we've got. there's thousands of artifacts out there. I've only got 50 of them. But there's thousands of them. And what we want to do is put the ones we have, the ones I have, I've offered them to the museum in Madison, Wisconsin. The Wisconsin State Historical Museum. They're going to build a new museum. Hopefully all my stuff goes in there. Well, at any rate, and some of my friends are doing the same thing. Stay, saving their songs so they can be put on an exhibit. So, anyhow, now we know where it is. I got some friends that are treasure hunters that are down there working, I've been paying their bills and we got the the, the motels and the food and the diesel fuel. And they've they've been down there working on this site and uh, we're not inside yet, but it's getting close. We know where it is. I have accomplished what I wanted to do because it's not lost to history anymore because they've sent cameras down the drill holes, six inch holes. And we've got pictures of artifacts. Came up with a uh, a uh, picture of a uh, great big platter with animals carved around this, um, embossed around the side of it somehow. It's a silver platter used to be put on a calyx or something. It goes on. And it uh, puts your sacrifice material on an altar. And we got a picture of half of it in a camera that went down a hole. And another camera went down another hole. And of course, we're drilling limestone. It seems to be a flat floor, which is kind of amazing. Black, and there's this line of limestone dust down there because we're kind of drilling down through limestone. It's white, and then on top of the white is gold. So, what is gold doing down the bottom of the hole? None of us know. I think that the that this chamber we entered with the drill well, was a gold had a golden ceiling because it would reflect a lamp light there. Uh, at the same time, I just read a book about Antony and Cleopatra, and uh, uh, well, not yeah, um, uh, it, the, it's about the tenth Legion, and it said that the Temple of Jupiter in Rome had a golden ceiling. Also, at the same date, so <clears throat> this colony, this all these stones and this place have to do with a colony of that came from Alexandria at about. Um, we know about the exact date that it started. They were refugees from Roman troops. And um, <clears throat> because uh, Cleopatra was trying to keep con- the Romans from wrecking Egypt, you know, she was very smart, could speak five languages. She's the first um, pharaoh of the, uh, uh, um, of the Greek. Uh, pharaohs of Egypt that could speak uh, Egyptian, even amazing woman, and she, um, her son with Caesar was put to death. Caesarion was put to death on put to death on the beach, uh, by her two children with Antony, uh, <clears throat> yeah, Antony and Pedro. their two children were named the, uh, Helios and Selene for the sun and the moon. Selene was married, the woman was married to the king of Martina to the west, helped. Um, the son was about nine years old. So, from these various people in there, we know that this the date of, of all this, Caesar had been died around 50 BC. So, we know that this was all happening around 10 BC or so. So, <clears throat> um, oh, but but there's pictures of Jesus in his cave stone. So, we know that it's after. You know how accurate the, the date of that birth date is uh, around zero. We don't know for sure. I don't think, but the dates are pretty narrow, within maybe a 20-year range or so. Uh, so we've got from the Jewish War, we've got uh, Jews, we got Alexandrian priests, and we got African Numidians. We got the Mauritanian fleet that disappeared from history, carrying the nobility, which was a people considered thought that noble people were more were better, higher quality people. And so you've got this, this nine-year-old who's the leader of this colony um, named uh, Helios. And in the, on the stones, there's a lot of pictures of him. A-I-I, or B-I-I, and um, he's the leader of the initially of his, for during his lifetime of a colony that escaped the Roman troops, came to the New World using sea routes that were known for thousands of years. The copper trade preceded them. And the Phoenicians preceded them, and they sailed these ocean routes, went up the Mississippi. I've got a lot, we've got lots of stones showing maps, uh, whales, UFOs, even uh, going to this below in the inverted waters to below the uh, zero degrees into the southern hemisphere. We've got a great number of very interesting. Uh, pictorial pictures, map stones, and so on. I put in my uh, copper trade book I p- for, for people to help people with their research. I put a lot of the uh, map, I put a lot of map stones in the in the book, copied with high, co- high quality photography. So um, I have 17 map stones in the book just to help people out with their research. This is the first one that map zone in the Mississippi given me by Burroughs Russell by uh, um, given to me by uh, Beverly Mosley so at any rate uh, we can document this whole cave experience real well now we know where it is we're working on it uh, and sometime we'll get it opened up and uh, be open to the public and then that's going to change all the history books because you know nobody Right now, the academics uh, are against any sailing to the West and uh, so on. So, <clears throat> I mean, the Azores were used by these people, there's pyramids out there and stuff. It's, um, but the, the sea routes were used, the Azores, the same ports in the Azores were used by the Spanish galleons to get for all gold that the Spanish ripped off. In the Americas, uh, went through the same ports, the same little islands in the Azores. They had to rediscover. They had a lot of trouble with the hurricanes because they had, they didn't know the trade wind patterns of the Earth either, and they had trouble understanding hurricanes and Gulf Stream and so on. <clears throat> but they used the same ports. They found them. They had to relearn the trade winds all over again. But uh, at any rate, it's a, it's an interesting story for um, the conquistadors as well as uh, uh, for these earlier peoples. Luckily, um, the early people were, although they were rapacious and were after copper, there's no history of uh, them uh, putting to death whole populations the way that the Spanish did. Um, Although there's an interesting angle, the Chinese apparently were in the area also and uh, and caused the death of people at Cahokia and then that's all recorded on some early maps and things that are just now being uncovered which I'm not an expert at but some people there's a couple of people that are researching that that's a, uh, another an open an area of research that's opening up at any rate well I'm getting tired of talking so
0: good job Jay to ask good job <laughs> all right good job Jay all right so hang in there we're doing well um let me look around and think for a second, so, um, so there's no evidence that the Minoans or these groups engaged in mass murder or like the Spanish, is that what you're saying?
1: Oh, one of the borough's cave stones shows uh, shaking hands with an Indian, you know? Uh, they, they were, they, they, uh, there's no evidence that they used the locals to do their mining. So they must have had quite a number of their own people. Uh, I think things were, there's a very different earth at the time, very different um, cultures. And, you know, not, so it's, it's I, I don't know how highly populated. Uh, I think there were a lot of locals. Um, we find down in Columbia and in the mouth of the Mississippi, very ancient, um, Farm beds, like they do up around Michigan, the farm beds around the mines raised vegetables. in ancient farm beds that were just huge. Um, uh, <clears throat> friends at the uh, at the AAPS are Leon um, are researching this subject. Uh, oh, and also another fellow has just. We found some of the interesting stuff coming up out of AAPS is that Beaver Island had uh, ports on it um, for copper miners. Um, The lake was 60 feet higher. We couldn't find much on Beaver Island until um, they used their uh, GPS and searched at the 60 foot higher mark and now they have identified and the papers are just being written. The research has just been finished by Jim Schurz. And uh, there's gonna be a paper coming out, I think in ancient American, on the, uh, the port, you port, know, on the Beaver Islands, where there was a, uh, a big, an island in, the, in, in the, uh, Lake Michigan where they were safe and good food and had a, quite a refuge in a freshwater lake. It was a wonderful thing before they went down the Mississippi with their products. And another uh, discovery that's come up recently by George Geely, an archaeologist and uh, architect in New Orleans, has found that on the Chandelure Islands, which are offshore, um, the mouth of the Mississippi, there was a uh, he's found a, he's showed at the meeting a granite roofstone from a lighthouse. It was on the end of the Chandelure Islands. So you got to understand, the United States is only two hundred years old, and these miners were mining this copper for maybe a thousand years, maybe two thousand years, maybe more. So they knew all the routes through to to the copper. They they had explored the world very thoroughly. I mean, they had thousands of years to do it, and um, maps are quite accurate. And uh, um, they, uh, I have, you know. Poverty Point's a big uh, place on the the that was where they were uh, uh, melting copper into ingots, and the ingots were made uh, in several places. One of them's up the Tennessee River, uh, Smithsonian Dig, but uh, I'm very interested in Cedarborn and Claiborne, which are at the mouth of the Pearl River, in um, upstream or across around the Chandelure Lighthouse, which is granite, which he identified as coming from Minnesota, by the way. And you'd come around the Chandelure Islands and up to the mouth of the Furrow River. There's a channel where you go through to where uh, the remains of the melting of Michigan copper and turning it into um, these, um, uh, ingots, 60 pound ingots that were sold all over the Mediterranean and sold to the Egyptians and are uh, drawn on the temple walls and so on. They, they, at the mouth of Pearl River, where these two little villages were separate villages, one Beaker, one Minoan, uh, I think, were, they have charcoal six feet deep, pile uh, rows of car- charcoal run six feet deep all around the site where they had continual fires. And of course, the river, Pearl River's coming down, they're coming up a big swamp, you know, sorts of, sorts of uh, logs available that would come down the river that could be used. Of course, it'd be green, wet wood that's coming out of the river mouth. So <clears throat> we know that these ingots were made over wet fires, uh, smoky, wet fires, because it's uh, blister copper that's full of uh, bubbles of air bubbles from the from the moisture. Very moist. The Germans studied this intensively and copper ingots were manufactured over, over uh, outdoor fires uh, that were in a very, very moist environment because it's called blister copper. You drop the ingots and they break and shatter and they pull up holes and stuff. Destroy all fits together. Beautifully. It's been studied extensively, but never put together very well yet. But it's now that we, we're going to have the excitement about an ancient uh, um, burial cave from a colony of people that ex- got away from Rome, uh, this is so I think people were receptive then to understanding that a thousand years prior to that, there was a copper trade, and copper came from Michigan and fueled the Bronze Age with copper. Several stories, but the discovery of massive amounts of gold in this cave, which I'm going to call the King of the Cave of the Kings, because we think I think we have the tombs of the Ptolemaic kings in there. I mean, after all, what would they bring? What would what would be brought from Egypt on ships other than the than the child? What would be brought? What would be valuable to bring? What has never been found? What's never been found is the body of Alexander, the tomb of Alexander, and the gold from Mauritania. So um, the satellite images that we have of the underground in this five-mile long cave system shows giant hits of precious metals. So, you know, that's why they're digging for free and I'm only paying their gas bills and the drilling bills so far. All right. But, uh, you know, we've bought the, we've bought the two farms supposedly where these caves are. So I think it's gonna change the archeological history and the history of the history books to have people escaping at this time and forming a colony in the new world. It'll open up uh, a lot of opportunities for prehistorians to get their views across, I hope.
0: Well, Jay, let me jump in with something. So great job so far. Here is a question from Rick Osmond. What did you and Bob List find at Poverty Point? And just kind of explain that to us. Who did you talk to down there? What was their reaction? Just tell us about that.
1: Uh, Poverty Point is a um, complicated story. Um, It's described at length in our Rocks and Rose book. Uh, The design of it is uh, uh, astronomic and numeric. It's very complicated and uh, sophisticated. Um, Only a very small part of the site has been excavated because archaeology is expensive. Um, It's an amazing site. Uh, Bob went on his own one morning, or I think on a later trip, yeah, with some he went over to the other side of the river and found some artifacts over on the other side of the bayou. So it's a bigger site even than is officially known. Okay. Um, <clears throat> the, the bayou that's going by the front of it used to be, uh, uh, of course, uh, at least one of the branches of the Mississippi. So, that boats coming up and down the Mississippi at the time Poverty Point was there uh, was not cut off from the Mississippi as it is now with closed bail. So, it's um, an ancient site. What was interesting to me is that when you look at it's on several of the borough scape stones, a multiple story would. Structures and there's no stones, so these got to be woods. There were several stories um, at Burroughs case time, which is you know a thousand years later, thousands of years, a thousand years later. I don't know who's maintaining the place. Somebody obviously lived there for quite a long time. It's it's known Poverty Point is known for uh, a very wide coll- uh, collection of stones from around the United States. They're widely connected stones from a lot of exotic places were taken down there for god knows why that they've been found on the site um, it needs a lot more um study basically Probably point does but um i think i don't know the dating of when the mississippi turned away from the site but uh the, the 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 Mississippi wandered back and forth for very many times, you know, from the air, and I got this picture. Of it looks like a head of hair. There's so many bays and things. Um, it's clear to me that the most of the ingots were made uh, down at, at the mouth of the Pearl River at Cedarland and Claiborne. Um, although I think uh, uh, copper uh, was also identified at uh, you know, at, at Claiborne. So at the Poverty Point. So I think it was, there were um, perhaps making ingots there. I don't have proof of that. I don't know what, I don't know what Rick wants to know, but he should read the article in Rocks and Rose.
0: Very good. Okay. So he also wanted you to tell me about blister copper. Can you explain that to us?
1: Mr. Copper was a, <clears throat> was a uh, nickname for um, a fellow that was mentor to a bunch of us, uh, Fred Ridholm, who um, was uh, a history teacher in uh, Marquette, Michigan. And he actually got elected uh, as mayor of Marquette three times in a row. He's a very loved guy um, and very intelligent. So he, he had this this wonderful sense humor. Everything to him was funny somewhere or another. And it's amazing how intelligent people are so fun to be with and look on the funny side of things. And he uh, started this organization AAPF and uh, gave it a uh, um, he gave it the the uh, an operating sense, uh, what would I say? He made it a place where everyone was accepted, regardless of what your point of view, so that people could express what they'd found and then let the pieces be sorted out, okay? So, as, it, uh, as uh, you know, the truth will out, as Jefferson said, the truth will out. You know, just get it all out. So. It's, it's, um, he's been, a, he's been a mentor to a lot of us. I mean, he was quite a uh, very funny and very interesting individual. He passed away quite a number of years ago, but uh, was, yeah. Well, an incredible,
0: I think I have a lot of respect for him. An incre- I didn't know his nickname was Blister Copper. um, <laughs> um. well, sure. <laughs> And he, so he started- Well, he wrote the book. Okay, he started AAPS, which I've been to a few of the conferences. You've been to every one for a while. And that group is unlike any other group that meets in the entire world, definitely in the United States. It is, you know, you you let people talk and you don't have to agree with them, but you at least listen to what they have to say. And uh, that's very unique in some of these conferences. Now, some of these conferences that have been about Burroughs Cave, you have people that get up in the audience and they walk out. They literally just will not listen or hear anything about Burroughs Cave because they are sure that Russell Burroughs hoaxed those stones. And one of the first people to believe in it, a PhD, was Cyclone Covey who defended the stones. And did you have correspondence with Cyclone Covey J or, or not?
1: I have not. That was an early group. And I have never met that person. I don't know if he's even still alive. I don't know. I can't deal with that. My friends know him, you know, I don't, well, I, I haven't met him. Uh, yeah, he's, I have never,
0: yeah.
1: I have never seen anyone get up and leave from an You know, other than to go to the bathroom or something. I've never seen anybody get up and leave from one of our AAPF conferences Uh because of disagreement over the subject, because we cover all kinds of things. And of course, you don't have to go to it all. There's a couple of things I, you know, that I don't watch that are uh, out of my area, but um, generally, I have benefited from the friends that I've made there. And uh, it's been very rewarding because um, uh, of who I've met and the things I've learned.
0: Yeah, and it's an incredible organization. I was talking about um, some of the original Midwestern Epigraphic Society meetings or you know those type of talks, um, Isaac, Maybe that's the one. Joe Mahan had Isaac Institute to uh, culture. And so when the topic of Burroughs Cave came up in the 80s, 90s, some people were just, you know, certain that Russ had carved these things. And they're so complex, they're so sophisticated, the stones that Cyclone Covey came to the defense and said, there's no way that this guy from West Virginia, you know, carved these thousands of stones. Uh, It'd be impossible. that." You know, ten years by ten of the best stone carvers in the world—that's how long it would have taken to duplicate this massive, thousands of piece collection. So it was just kind of a nice compliment to AAPS. As uh, anybody can speak there, if Judy will allow it, and we're we're totally open to what people say. Let's um, let's switch gears a little bit just for fun. Is that okay, Jay? Sure. So I have a whole bunch of questions about ancient America stuff, and we're going to talk about that stuff uh, probably the next conversation, maybe a little bit now, but let's just jump around and have some fun for a minute. So you were going to write a book and you might still write a book, but you were going to write a book on the JFK assassination and you read as much as you could. No. Oh, you weren't. You just wanted to learn. You just wanted to learn I'm, what happened.
1: Well, it's the biggest thing that happened in my lifetime when I graduated my school, President's Shot. And uh, <clears throat> I think I've got a lot of the books, I suppose about 400 books printed on the subject, but I have, uh, I have a lot of them. And uh, in fact, uh, here's some of them right here.
0: Tell us, Jay, That's what
1: JFK books.
0: Tell us, Jay, what your conclusions are on the subject.
1: <clears throat> I've got a flow sheet. Okay. Well, a lot of the publications are based, are written by somebody that has something to contribute. And so they flew a plane or they did something that enabled them to learn a so a lot of the books are about one angle or another, and <clears throat> for example, the last one I just read is "Me and Lee." This one, <clears throat> "Me and Lee." This is their Os- Oswald's girlfriend. Huh. Okay. Yeah. It's a good book.
0: Yeah.
1: tells all tells old, tells old story. What I'm trying to say is that um, a lot of this stuff, people were put to death or telling the truth or people were so scared, you know? So a lot of these books have been written even recently, new information and um, has come out or it's been verified. I've got a flow chart that I've done, it's a couple couple of feet long of all the names of all the people that were involved and including the shooters and then everything. And it's very complicated. And you learn a little something from each book. So it's, it's a matter of putting a lot of things together. But most people have read enough that I understand the majority of the population knows that he was murdered. The question was who did it? <clears throat> but uh, in their minds, because there's a lot of different People. The books take different tacks on it. Uh, Basically, it's a complex milieu of a lot of people that uh, had motivations to get rid of them. And one of the chief ones, of course, was LBJ himself. I mean, what's astonishing and shameful to me is that a big movie's been put out about. uh, You know, Lyndon Johnson recently made him look like some sort of a hero. He's really responsible for the murder. So, um, and of course, a bunch of oilmen and a whole bunch of right-enders. And, you know, they do anything to stay in power. You can see it even today. So, um, the United States has gone to the right end. I mean, it's for a long period of time, most of my lifetime. Most of my adult lifetime. Since the murder of JFK, the United States has gone to um, uh, uh, the right and lowering the taxes on the rich people and you know, benefiting the rich. <clears throat> it's almost a point now where we've got uh, aristocracies of the rich that they can project their fortunes down through for hundreds of years years is just um, you know, I, I mean I've benefited from some of this also but it's um, America is uh, close to a uh, you know we've seen it in the recent elections close to uh, a uh, plutocracy autocr- uh, you know an autocratic government that's Of of the rich, for the rich, by the rich. Anyway, it all comes down from the murder of uh, Kennedy. They um, they didn't. He was put away for people. People didn't want him. The oil people were behind it. There was finances behind it. The the rich were behind getting rid of him. It's not just the rich. It's the anti-communists. It's a whole lot of craziness, you know. Kind of like today. It's complicated.
0: And the, uh, and the, the, uh, mafia brothers that, uh, his brother went against that helped get him, get him elected to from Chicago. Right. They wanted him dead also.
1: Uh, well, the CIA was using it, you know, with using the, uh, uh, mafia to do some of their murdering, uh, the CIA has just been a disaster from the get go. Um, I I agree with John Kennedy that JFK that it should be abolished. It's just been a disaster in one country after another. You know where we've backed dictators. We're supposed to be uh, backing uh, our principles, but we don't. We back dictators that frequently murder their populations, rip off their people it's a, it's a, it's discouraging I mean, american democracy is is not as democratic as, as we were led to believe in we were kids
0: and so jfk J, i'm so sorry um it, it's uh so jfk was going to he-, he was going to not blow the lid on certain things whether that could have been ufos or whatever else but he was going to he was going to make changes that the rich didn't want to have changed, right? Coupled with LBJ wanting power.
1: He was going to take away, he was going to take away the oil depletion allowance. You know?
0: Take Um, away the what, Jay? Take away the
1: what? The depletion allowance from the oil people. It's the only industry where you get to deduct the cost of using up the stuff. You know, when you're in a timber business and you're cutting trees, you don't get a tax deduction for the, because the trees have disappeared, because you've used up the trees. It was a subsidy to help the business. So even in the congressional hearings just last week, I heard uh, this Katie, who's just so smart, interviewing the oil CEO, talking about his is, uh, is subsidies from the US government. And he says, so we don't get subsidies. So she says, well, I'll sit tight a minute and I'll explain them to you. And She explained oil subsidies to an oil CEO in Congress last week. I mean, wow. unbelievable. Wow. So, <clears throat> but initially it's kind of like, you know giving the forests to the timber company, uh in the West. You're, you're trying to um, promote uh, the development of business. It was, a, it was a philosophy that was promoted by Lincoln actually. He wanted to do uh, to, to benefit uh, businesses that would develop society. Of course, Lincoln himself is such an interesting guy. I've got about five on them and they're all different. One of them describes his early love life where he would, he loved this girl so much he went on after she died, she, he went up and cried on her tomb uh, uh, every day for years. I mean, amazing stories about Lincoln. Of course, he wanted to put all the black people from the north and the south to, into Central America to raise bananas and get them out of the country because they didn't think they'd ever live together. He, he wanted uh, um, he made he wanted the states not to have the rights that they initially had. You know, I mean, we used to have a group of states. Now we've just got a big national government, right? Pretty much, and it's Lincoln doing it. He made a great, huge uh, uh, national imperial state. And uh, uh, I, I, I've read enough of Lincoln books now to understand that he's responsible for doing that. He put, I mean, he, he, illegally, he did it. He put people that criticized him in jail with no process, got rid of habeas corpus, and so on. He put Newspaper people in jail just without with, during the Civil War. He just said well, we had to do it. So he, he made the big national state that we now have. Wow. And of course when he declared the slaves to be free, he thought it was just a wartime thing that would only happen, only apply to the Southern states, not the Northern states, and that and that the uh, and that after the war the court would de, would uh, declare the thing. He was a lawyer, so he says this isn't a legal thing to do anyway. So, you know,
0: he celebrated for stuff that he didn't think would last. Wow. But
1: anyway, I, that's not, you're getting me considerably. I'm, I, I shouldn't be talking about this stuff.
0: <laughs> that was great, Jay. No that's... We Go back to
1: the artifact.
0: All right. All right. That was great. That was great knowledge. So, let's just talk was... for a few more and then we'll, we'll look. That. I hope you're having fun. Um, okay. So,
1: that stuff came. Some of, these, some of these insights came, came from Bob List, by the way, some of it. who is a professor at Jackson State.
0: Okay, so why don't you explain to us the different latitudes going across? So you had the Royal Crossing, you had you know, 23 degree, 45 degree is Beaver Island, 50 and 40 is Spain, as you said, 38, 37, the Azores. No,
1: Beaver Island is 45. No, Beaver Island's, I think, 45.
0: 45, correct. All right, so tell, of latitude. Us, tell us about the Royal Crossing. Tell us about the use of latitude in Bronze Age sailing, as you have said. All
1: right, well, that's been kind of the key The subject of all the research all the, all the readings I've done and all the site visits I've every, every it's the whole issue is latitudes and officially they they weren't they're not known until about 5 AD i mean fairly late they're so <clears throat> but there's a, a a place called Barnenez uh, which is a uh, uh, I think it has about, it's a tomb, a cairn with about mm, half a dozen tombs in it on the north coast of France, which is a tourist site. Now, in the old days, so I got a picture of it. Um, half of it was uh, bulldozed out and trucked away to build roads because they found it an easy place to get rock. But now it's a one of the famous French tourist sites, <clears throat> mostly standing, Standing there, still they tore about. They tore into the chamber from the backside, basically. So Bar-Nineas, um when you study it numerically, has latitudes in it, and we dated. We were able to figure that it was actually built at the time that the European peoples and Beaker peoples were. Exploring the Northern Islands—that is, Europe, Scandinavia, Ireland, and so on—and these tombs relate to that. And it is dated officially by the archaeologists over there at 4,800 BC. That's the first. That's the earliest use of latitudes that we've ever we'd ever seen. So that the way to think about it is this, that I was taught by Reno, and I, I think it makes it easy for anyone to understand. If you're standing somewhere on the earth and you observe uh, the latitude, or the height of the sun at noon, it comes up to some angle, okay? And if you go, if you travel south the angle is higher and if you travel to the north the angle is smaller the sun gets down and down okay so how could you not know that's what latitudes are is the angle of the sun at noon that's what you do with the sextant and early sextants were made out of pieces of wooden string and strings with a rock on it So that you could get a straight line down and you could get a horizon and you could read how high, what the angle is up. How high is the sun at noon? It's more complicated if you start doing stars and stuff. But the latitude, the simplest one is just um, you know, and if you know the stars, you know that the North Star, everything circles around it. So you know where the North is and you know where, how far up on the globe you are by the angle to the sun at noon, so it actually goes back to before 4800 BC. We've uh, that's the earliest evidence we have for latitude knowledge.
0: Very good. Um, tell us about tell us about. So if you're if you're on you know England, France, Spain. If you try to go west, you're going to face strong winds, right? Correct. So you're going to want to either go the northern route,
1: jumping from island to island,
0: and fi- fish. They found they
1: could go from island to island.
0: And and you might fish along the shore, you know, catching seals or whatever. But you're along the shore on these boats, and. You would then hit Greenland, you know, Leons Meadows up there, and then you would come south down to Cape Cod, and so that's one route, right, Jay? Yeah. The other route. Northern route, yeah. The northern route. The other route is the, the southern north crossing, yeah. The north, the north, northern crossing. Southern crossing. So the southern crossing. Southern
1: crossing and the northern crossing.
0: And so, tell us about the southern mm-hmm. co- crossing, getting to the Caribbean and up to Florida.
1: <clears throat> right now, when there's dust storms in the Sahara, the dust is settling in the Caribbean, all across the Atlantic. Okay, and they get the corals got infection, have infections in it that have come from the Sahara. I mean, it's a one world down there. Everything blows from Africa across. And uh, um, Columbus, that's the way Columbus went. It's the way they all go. They discovered you could go that way. And uh, because the wind was with them, and it carries everything across. You end up in the southern uh, Antilles down there, and the coast of South America. And uh, we don't have a lot of evidence for this, but we think they actually went down the coast, to Rio de la Plata, and we're going up into the, Mount Potosi and getting tin up there for the bronze, because there's not a lot known as to where these early people got their tin. Um, it's technically it's from the Cornish mines in England, Southern England, but, uh, and there's certainly a lot of it. it came from there and so on, but, um, and I've been there and I've checked it up, but we think it also, they had from the um, uh, Chihuahuanaco area at the south end of Lake Titicaca, they had, a trail that ran down to the Rio de la Plata that the Conquistadors found. It had been cleared all the way to the Danged Ocean. That's a long way. So <clears throat> to the ocean, from Titicaca. It's um, you know, there were big populations up there. The mountains are terraced in all directions. I mean, around southern Titicaca, there were huge populations there that are not there anymore. There have forty varieties of potato, not for by accident. And and uh, the monuments up there have uh, uh, you know um, the that we found a there's a bowl in the museum there that has uh, um, uh, cuneiform on it all around the book edge of the bowl and so on it's uh, in my, I wrote about it in my book that the the, the the there's uh, all these heads around one of the sites and the heads are all have Arabic turbans on them and I mean, it's just clearly the worlds were related. How related, we don't know. Whether it was the source of tin, I don't know, but you'd get there just by going down the coast. So we take it easily, it was downwind, down to Rio de la Plata.
0: All right, well, just a few few more questions and then you're gonna eat because you need some food and some energy. And then maybe we can continue this either tomorrow or the next day. So just a couple more questions, okay? So, how did you get back? Yeah. How did you get I, back to Europe? Was it the Royal Crossing and you went to the Azores, and, or was there a few oh. different ways?
1: Well, Renault called it uh, on one of the charts, it's marked as Royal Crossing to come from downwind from. Uh, Cape Race, Newfoundland, to the Azores. It's not a long trip, it's it's only halfway across the ocean and you're sailing on a reach across the Gulf Stream, a little bit downwind and um, so it wasn't too hard to do. Um, They knew they had to get to 39, even the 39 degree latitude to find the islands out there they uh even if you buy go buy the sailing guide to sail your yacht to the azores today which people do it says go to latitude 39 and just sail east until you hit the azores (coughs) those are the instructions today that's what they were doing actually if they get a little further that that takes you a little 39 hits the american coast more down massachusetts but if you go up to Cape Reyes, which is um, further east, you have to cut across and cut down a little bit. That's uh, what they were doing, we were, we're pretty sure, because it was the shortest route.
0: And, and so did they to always- call, Raynaud,
1: called it, Raynaud called it the Royal Crossing on one of our maps because early on, he thought only the God, they thought only God could, only the sun God could cross uh, against the wind to the Azores. It was against the wind. But if you go up to Cape raids, you're kind of broad reaching across it. And they were able to do that in tons of could.
0: So, would, so you, I don't, I... Would, would you have usually taken off from America's Stonehenge in New Hampshire, or could you also have taken off from Virginia or Florida?
1: Uh, <clears throat> well, they did that and found that there was an island out there called Bermuda. <laughs> so that was another route that was discovered later. We've written up about that because there's a monument about it in Maine that's in the book. I think it's in the Sun God book. Um, but that was a later development. Um, but they had, you know, they were sailing these routes for a couple of thousand years. So, you know, they found their way around. Um, took time. Um, but they had time. So, you know. Um, The uh, how <clears throat> the Cape Race, you go by Stable Island and up along to the, as far as you could to the east and then down to 39. And it was pretty straightforward. US, you know, that was a site where it was co- early called Mystery Hill. Now it's called American Stonehenge. It's the biggest megalithic monument in America in North America. It was, um, uh, we have a, a large explanation of it that we spent a year figuring out in the, in the Sun God book. Um, basically, it was teaching navigation, and all the sailors trying to go back to Europe stopped there and sacrificed on sacrifice stone, which some kind of QAnon is marked up with power tools. Do so I want to put it in the movie that we've written, Chris, but it's, it's now defaced. At any rate, um, it's a walk-in map of the ocean in stone. Okay, These guys like to make walk-in maps. We've seen them other places from Karnak on. And uh, yeah, so uh, the stones are both astronomic and geographic, which is absolutely remarkable and we'll take a genius the smartest people they had to figure all out, figure that out. It's amazing.
0: <clears throat>
1: but um, um, th- there is up above the site, there is a large men here. And uh, it was surrounded by a circle of stones, and it had carved in it in Roman numerals 39 in Roman numerals. And that could have been the date to set sail, but it's maybe also the importance of the Azores that they had to find next. Latitude 39. Is, is it- that 39 carving is in the uh, is in the building? That they've saved it. It's broken out of them in here, and it's laying in the museum there at uh, American Stone Age. Mm-hmm.
0: And so is 39 degrees going back to the Azores, is that so much easier than it is just going straight to the mainland? Is that like a a critical stop? Is it a necessary stop? Or just it's easy to find that 39 degree?
1: Um, You know, you run out of stuff when you're at sea in a slow going six knot boat or something. So they need water. Maybe it rained, maybe it didn't. Maybe they, you know, they stop in where they can to refresh, bathe. You know, what it's like to have salt water in your skin for a month or so. You know, they need that, they stop where they can. They're not dumb. They stop, refresh, party, party hardy. You know, I don't know if they had beer in the Azores, but I know they had parties there because I found a dancer. They have pyramids there. They stop in, they see their friends and their buddies. They've got things from the new world that are treasures to the, that they can trade for stuff and uh maybe there's women there that are interesting to them you know whatever they want to stop and uh so yeah it's safer it's easy to do um and there's other islands too and uh, to go without stopping there <clears throat> is a long and more dangerous trip um The Bay of Biscay is just famous in between France and Spain, you know, for rough weather. Um, You don't know quite what the weather's going to do toward the English Channel and so on. You want to get go as far as you can through the Azores and then head to the continent from there.
0: Thank you. That's just what I wanted to hear. Let's call it a day for now. Let's get you a nice sandwich or something. We'll get you some energy in that brain of yours. and uh, let's continue this like tomorrow. I, I didn't, th- I didn't feel what Jay.
1: Yeah. I didn't feel like I was fading, but okay. I didn't <laughs> think I was fading.
0: I didn't know if you had low <laughs> blood sugar and uh, you know, you're going to keel over on this no. video program So You kept your energy together very well, Jay, and you did great work in sharing it with us and with the world. This is, you know, all the comments in your book say, you've done great work and great work and great work. And I'll just repeat that same thing that you've done great work and the world's very lucky for your work. And Mm. we just need to get it out to more people. Uh, You know, it's, we know this, it's a fascinating story. You go up to state archaeologists and they turn their back to you, or you ask somebody at, you know, the historical society a question and they you know, they don't have an answer to it. It's um, we're all very frustrated by our passion and understanding of this alternative ancient history that nobody, not too many academics, take seriously, and it's very frustrating. So you and I have a, a very shared perspective, and your work is we need to we need to get people and young people interested in this stuff more. And for some reason, Are you leaving? For some reason, Jay, I'm almost done. For, for some reason, this stuff is suppressed oh, okay. to, the, to the school children. It is, it, it, this stuff is suppressed to the school children. Well, it's
1: gonna open up soon, Chris. Hey, Chris. Yeah. Chris, it's all gonna open up. This cave opening is gonna show amazing stuff. So don't worry about it. It's all in process.
0: All right, maybe this interview gets the word out too. In, in, to some interested parties uh and okay. and all right so enjoy okay. the rest of your day and let's continue this uh in a day or two if you want okay i'll give you a two-day break
1: send me an email tell me when you want to do it give me some advance notice but i'll be here all right
0: all right good job jay okay. bye thanks bye. chris bye
1: okay bye